We're in Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 34 through 37. It's a long chapter again that I'm going to walk through the whole thing with you. So I'm not going to read the whole thing with you in advance this morning, but I'm going to start there, 34 to 37, and then we'll walk back through it. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, as we consider this epistle, this letter of Nebuchadnezzar to be read to his people in the kingdom of Babylon, that's been recorded to us by your prophet Daniel, we pray, Father, that as we, as we look at this word, that your spirit would be at work in us, that he would open our eyes to the truth about you, that you would help us to repent where we need to repent, to change our minds where we need to change our minds, to be humbled in all the areas in which we are prideful, that we would see that, that you are the king, that all your ways are just and right, that no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? Because you are God and we are not. We pray that we would wrap our minds around that and that we would rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I want to do as I walk through Daniel 4. I, I want to sort of put you back in the place of where we are in the book and then walk through this passage with you quickly. And after we walk through the passage, I sort of want to take two lessons that we pick up in the passage and extend them to you. One lesson is primary. One's primary. One thing comes out in here that is the major thrust of the chapter, and that is that God is sovereign, that God is king, that, that no one else is king, that he's in control of all things, that he gives the kingdom to whoever he wants to. So that's one theme that comes out huge here. And the second theme is that not only is he sovereign, but he's merciful. He's a merciful king. And that's really a secondary theme here. But the primary one being his sovereignty. So what I want to do is walk through the passage and then walk through those points with you. But before we jump there, I sort of want to catch you up to where we are. I want you to understand what's happened in the history of Israel at this point. There is a prophet named Jeremiah. Call him the weeping prophet because his life sucked. It did. It was terrible. Jeremiah is a prophet who talked about um, the Lord, and he warned his people that exile was coming, that the judgment of God was coming, that this king was coming from Babylon who was going to conquer them, that all of their worst nightmares were, were coming true because of the fact that they did not trust in Yahweh, their God, that they were not looking to him, that their focus was on themselves, that they had begun to build their own personal kingdoms and were no longer interested in his kingdom. 
that they were committing rank idolatry. And so Jeremiah had warned them and warned them and warned them, and they didn't take heed. And in about 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, swept into Israel and Judah and conquered the area and carried the people off into exile. So you know the people who were carried off in exile, largely the Jewish people, particularly the young men who were bright. The young men who had some real talent to offer to the kingdom of Babylon. They were carried off into Babylon and they were, they were at the city of Babylon, which is somewhere in the area now of, of what we might call Iraq. Okay, so somewhere in that area is the city of Babylon, and, and I don't, I'm not going to put a map up and point your attention to it, but just you can picture there they are. And they're being ruled by this tyrannical king. He was a man who did not recognize their gods as being, their God as being God, but he recognized all the gods of the people around him. He was a man who did not care for their traditions, did not care for the commands that God had given them. He was going to put them in subscription to himself as king. And he did. And what we see unravel is this story in which Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are later all renamed, right? Daniel and the three friends are all renamed. Daniel to Belteshazzar, and then Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, they lose their names that praise Yahweh, and they receive new names that praise the pagan god, the pagan gods, really, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But these young men, as they rise up through the school, as they're being trained as magi, right? In here, you'll hear them referred to as magicians or astrologers. They're being trained up as magi. We sometimes call them, we like to call them, especially when we come to the New Testament, wise men, right? We don't like to think that magicians came to visit Jesus, but that's what they were in fact called. And so Daniel and his friends were trained up in that context. And they were trained quite well. In fact, they excelled in their school. They far excelled everybody else. And they became the best at what they did. And God was with them, and he blessed them as they were faithful to him. And they became, um, in some sense, chief among all of the other magi in the area. And at some point, you start to see Daniel raise up and do things that the other magicians are not able to do. Nebuchadnezzar at one point has a dream, and he says to the Magi, he brings all the wise men, astrologers, enchanters, Chaldeans, etc., to himself and says, someone tell me the dream and tell me its interpretation, and none of them could do it. They're like, well, king, we'd like to interpret it for you, but you need to tell us what it is first. And he says, no, I want you to tell me the dream and then tell me its interpretation. No one can do it. So Daniel comes to him and says, I want to be able to do it. I'll, I'll do it. And the king says, well, are you able? And Daniel says, no, nobody but God can do this. But I'm going to go to him, seek him out, and I'm going to do it. Now, I'm paraphrasing the story. And so Daniel goes to the Lord, seeks him out. The Lord blesses Daniel. Daniel comes to to Nebuchadnezzar and says, here's the dream, and here's its interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar hears it and realizes that Daniel's God is greater than the other gods. But mind you, Nebuchadnezzar does not at that point start worshiping Daniel's God. He doesn't repent and say, you know what? All of these pagan temples I've built in the city, let's tear them down. The temple to our great god of Babylon, Marduk, let's tear that temple down. Because you could see that everywhere in the city of Babylon. There were at least 30 temples, no less than 30 temples in the city of Babylon, the largest one to Marduk. He didn't say, let's tear them down and let's worship Yahweh. No, what he says is, Daniel, your god is the greatest among the gods, so let's serve him too. In fact, I'm going to give you and your buddies 
some power among the people here, and we're going to not only manipulate all these other gods, we're going to start manipulating your god. And that's one of the important lessons you need to understand when you talk to animists, by the way, or people who are polytheistic and in some way spend their time trying to manipulate the gods. You guys know what I'm talking about there? They want to find the gods. How do we please them? How do we manipulate them? How do we keep from ticking them off? How do we get what we want out of them? And all Nebuchadnezzar's doing with Daniel is saying, wow, your God can do some amazing things these other guys' gods can't do, so let's add him to the group. Let's add him to the group and start manipulating him too and see what we can get out of him. You see that take place specifically in Daniel chapter 3, which Jason dealt with last week, and then we come into Daniel chapter 4. Now what's amazing is in Daniel chapter 3, You've already got a Nebuchadnezzar, this king, who's seen Daniel give him the dream and interpretation. Now in Daniel chapter 3, he sees Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah walk into and out of a fiery furnace unscathed. And he once again says, let's worship their God. But mind you, he's still not my God, he's their God. You guys hear what's going on here? Daniel chapter 4, we pick up. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had extended over the entire area of, that wor- of the world of that day that, that they knew of, and he assumed of himself, I basically rule all the known world, or at least the parts of the world that are important, and so I'm sending a letter to you. He's addressing them. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys have read Paul's letters, similar, right? Paul, an apostle, to this church. Essentially, that's what he's doing. King Nebuchadnezzar, addressing himself, I'm writing to you, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. In other words, I have a letter. I want to tell you about something, Nebuchadnezzar says. Peace be multiplied to you. A normal greeting. It has seemed good to me. Now notice this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Speaking here of Daniel's God, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, you ought to stop if you're reading this letter and say, what just happened here? What just happened? How has Nebuchadnezzar gone from the guy who's like, yeah, let's add your God to the pantheon of gods, let's worship him and get what we can out of him. I'm the king, he ought to serve me as the king. How do we go from that to Nebuchadnezzar saying, he's the king, his kingdom endures from generation to generation? What happened? How does Nebuchadnezzar start off praising Yahweh, worshiping him? He's no longer saying, Daniel, let's bring your God in and give him some cred, right? What's he saying now? I'm worshiping this God. What happened? Well, that's what, Nebuchadnezzar's about to go on and tell us. Because the beginning of this letter, he's basically telling you out from the outset, I'm worshiping Yahweh now. Now let me tell you, let me back up now and tell you what happened. So look at verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He's doing quite well. This, so you know, is about 20 years after the fiery furnace incident. Okay, so we've had the incident of the fiery furnace and the dream and all those kind of things which happened Uh, over two decades prior to this. And he's there, and he's prospering, and he's at ease. That's how we all want it, right? I'm at ease in my house, and I'm prospering, right? And that's where he's at. And that's a pagan, by the way. I saw a dream that made me afraid. 
As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now think about that. Here's the most powerful man in the world, prospering for over two decades, and he has a dream that unsettles him. Verse 6, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, I want you to stop there for a second. What is the problem that you notice right off? Nebuchadnezzar, are you really going to rehearse this again? You had all the astrologers and magicians, enchanters and Chaldeans come into you before to tell you the interpretation of your dream, and they couldn't do it before. Only Daniel could, and yet you're calling them in again? You don't call Daniel in here. You call all of them in. Isn't it interesting how like us that can be? We never want to turn to those who are going to tell us the truth and give us wisdom when it's stuff we don't want to hear, we always want to keep returning to those people who tell us exactly what we want to hear. We don't want to turn to the people who are going to point us to the Lord and say, you know what your problem is? At the end of the day, Nebuchadnezzar, your problem is you don't trust the Lord. We want to turn to those who will tell us, you know what your problem is? That person's in your way. That circumstance is in your way. Not, you need to repent, you're a sinner, you're in your way. You need the Lord. But that's where Nebuchadnezzar goes. He goes back to the old worldly wisdom. And then finally, verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. So none of the other guys could do it. He who was named Belteshazzar, that's the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar at this time has no way to describe what's different about Daniel except to say he has the spirit of the holy gods. Now we all know that's the Holy Spirit. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that. There's just something different about Daniel. He is in some way walking with the gods. Is the only way that Nebuchadnezzar knows how to talk about it. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, again he says that again, right? And that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. What's interesting there is, he says, no mystery is too difficult for you, Daniel. But Daniel clearly told him in chapter 2 that he can't unveil any mystery, that only the Lord can. Nebuchadnezzar just doesn't get it. And you might say, how, how does he not get it? He, he had somebody walk in and tell him his dream and interpret it. Then he had another three guys walk into a furnace, in and out of the furnace, and 20 years later, he still doesn't get it? Well, how many times does God bless you and show his goodness to you and show kindness to you and you refuse to get it? You keep going back to the same vomit. You keep returning to it just like a dog, right? So he goes on. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. Now here comes the vision. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. Now, so you know, Nebuchadnezzar is describing himself here. (laughs) And it was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in it, 
in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. In other words, I saw this great tree that shaded the whole earth and took care of all the animals, and they all nest, the birds nested in it, and the animals found shade under it and ate the grass underneath it, and it was providing for all the earth. And he's talking about his own kingdom. So you know this same tree analogy is actually also um, credited to Pharaoh in the book of Ezekiel. It's not unusual to talk about a kingdom, and especially a kingdom that spreads as a great tree. And it's being applied to Nebuchadnezzar here. Later, Jesus applies this to his own kingdom, doesn't he? He says it starts out as a mustard seed, the kingdom of God, and it grows into a great tree. And the birds nest in it. I saw in the visions of my head, verse 13, as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. This is some kind of an angel a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now notice the tree starts to get personified in this next statement. Let him, that being the tree that's been cut down, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Now we're going to come up to the seven periods of time phrase more than once. The fact is, is that Scholars don't know what the seven periods of time refers to, refer to as far as how much is the period of time. Some scholars come along and say it's seven years, but nowhere in the text does it tell us seven years. It's seven periods of time. Why seven? Well, likely because it's quite frequently the case through Scripture that seven is a number of completion. Seven is the number which God creates the earth, right? In six days he creates the earth. On the seventh day he rests. And seven is on the set you work for. Six years on the seventh, you give the land rest. After seven sevens, seven periods of seven years, after 49 years, 49 years, on the 50th, you have the year of Jubilee, where rest happens. There is a pattern of seven being the year of completion, or the idea of completion. And here it seems to be that there are seven periods of time. Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to bring this about for seven periods of time. In other words, he's going to bring it about as much as is necessary to accomplish his purpose. That's how long it's going to last. You know how long it's going to last? As long as necessary to bring about his purpose. So he goes on, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end. Here's the goal of this sentence. Here's why this is happening, Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, to the end... To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And you can understand why he'd be dismayed. He's about to tell the king some really hard news. And telling pagan, tyrannical kings that bad things are about to happen to them usually will leave you dismayed. Because when you tell them them, that bad things are about to happen to you as well. 
was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, not, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. In other words, don't worry about it. Tell me what it is. Don't be alarmed. Belteshazzar answered and said, this is Daniel speaking, my Lord, and this is exactly what you'd say to a king just before you're about to tell him of destruction, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, here's this phrase again, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So here's the story. You, king, are the tree, and you're about to be chopped down. And you're gonna live with the beasts of the field. In other words, what's gonna happen is, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna go insane. You're going to lose your mind. You're actually going to suffer from the condition lycanthropy. I don't mean by that he's going to be a werewolf. I mean by that he's going to think he's an animal. And most likely here an ox. He's going to go completely crazy. And he's being warned, king, repent before this comes upon you because you're going to live out there and it's going to be rough. I want you to know something about it though. I want you to hear something about this. King, he's, God's going to leave the stump. Why? Because God's planning to be merciful to you. He's going to restore you once you recognize that heaven rules. Once you recognize that he is God and you are not, God will restore you. But in the meantime, he's going to take you through hell to bring you to repentance. Now this is a merciful, merciful work of God here. It's a severe mercy and we'll deal with that in a little bit. But it's mercy nonetheless. And Daniel warns him, king, let me offer you some advice. Repent. Repent now before this happens so that you come to know the Lord and trust in the Lord before he has to take you through all this because if you want 
to be arrogant and prideful and walk after your own way and have your heart turned in on yourself and be focused on your own prosperity and walk in pride that way. If you want to walk that way, I want you to know that God is going to be merciful to you and he's going to offer you a severe mercy, a mercy that's incredibly painful because he will bring you to repentance. And he's going to bring you to repentance one way or another. And the way he's going to bring you to repentance, if you don't repent now, is he's going to bring you to repentance through a whole lot of pain. So repent before that pain comes. But Nebuchadnezzar is not interested. Then Daniel, whose name, verse 19, excuse me, verse 28, all this, verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now notice that. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. In other words, the letters changed. Now Daniel's telling you the story. What's interesting is, 12 months later, Daniel's given the warning. Nebuchadnezzar walks off and doesn't repent. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't buy it. It's like, thanks for the warning, Daniel. It was just a dream. Don't worry about it. That All that stuff isn't going to happen to me. I'm the king of all the earth. Don't you know that? And so he goes off for 12 months. At the end of 12, and God is patient. 12 months God gives him to repent. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the reason he does this, by the way, is he had a flat roof, Nebuchadnezzar did, so he could walk and see his city. So you understand the city. Like I said, there were at least 30 temples in there, the largest being the Marduk. They had two walls, an inner wall that was quite grand, as well as an outer wall, both of which could be seen from his palace. He could also see the hanging gardens. You know, the hanging gardens are one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. And um, he could see all of that he built. He had the ziggurat, which he could see, which was a 33-story tower building he had built in the city. The walls, because of the great walls, because of the greatness of the city, it was considered impenetrable. And so he's walking around the palace of his roof, looking at all that he thinks his hands have brought about. Glorying in his incredible power. And look what happens here as he's walking. And he's walking on the roof of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You think he's missed the point Daniel's tried to bring to him? While the words were still, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So you see that phrase again. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. You know when your nails grow long and they curl under? At the end of, of the days, the end of this seven periods of time, we read this. The end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. Now imagine this. God has driven you to insanity for seven periods of time, however long that is, where you're living like an animal. And when you come out of it, when he's brought you finally to the point where he's crushed you, where you're on your face recognizing you are God and I am not. 
when you've reached the end of your personal insanity of somehow thinking that you're sovereign over anything, when that day finally comes, you look up to him after that insanity and say to him, I, I praise an honored and blessed God. Praise and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now you would think that of all the people who would want to say that to God, Nebuchadnezzar would be one of them, wouldn't he? If God ever takes you through one of these severe mercies, whether as an unbeliever who he takes through very difficult times to bring you on your face so that you believe, which, by the way, he will. He will take you there. Whether you're an unbeliever who he takes through that, and some of you may be in that state right now, God may be bringing you to the end of yourself, even as we speak, as he did with Nebuchadnezzar. You may be reaching the point where you're saying, I thought I had it all programmed in, I thought I had it all under control, and God is wrecking me. It's all falling around, apart around me. I don't know what to do. I no longer have any hope in myself or in what I can figure out or what I can do. I don't know what to do. And you know what happens if you continue to try to reach within yourself for your own resources to deal with it? You start to go crazy. It's what G.K. Chesterton calls the maniac. He's the very intelligent man who believes that somehow he can dial it in through his own thought and eventually he loses his mind. He stops sleeping, he starts being anxious, he starts needing to be medicated, he has to go to continuous counseling because he's losing control of his life and he has no resources which to deal with it, but yet he continues in the insanity of trying to find the resources from within himself and he will never find them because he's bankrupt. And so he loses it and that's Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe some of you are there now. And if you are, it's because God's being merciful to you. He's bringing you to the end of yourself. And hopefully he'll bring you all the way to repentance and you'll look and see him, and your reason will return to you. And if it does, you will know that what he did was merciful. And you will praise and honor him who is the king, who is sovereign over all things. And you'll be done with your own self-sovereignty. You'll stop appealing to your own control over life, and you'll start resting in him. Hopefully he's bringing you there. But believers, he might bring you there as well. You might be a believer who's beginning to walk in pride and God will humble you. He will. The Father disciplines those whom he loves. And the discipline may be painful for a time, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you ever walked through a difficult time and had the Lord walk you through it and came, come out the other side, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. You get to the other side and you understand Nebuchadnezzar's song, don't you? Man, I went through hell and I praise God for it. He goes on, at the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. In other words, God restores Nebuchadnezzar. 
my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's quite a chapter, isn't it? Focused in really on two themes, which I want to revisit with you briefly. One is that God is the only sovereign. God is the only sovereign. And the second is that God, the only sovereign, is merciful. Ready for both of those? Because the primary one is that God is the only sovereign. That's where the focus of the chapter is. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, and he is declaring that God is the only sovereign. That would have been a shocker to the Jews he had in exile. Jews, I brought you off in exile. I crushed your, your country. Your God is sovereign, not me. Now, if you're the people of Israel at this time hearing this message, you're stunned. None of my gods are sovereign. All these gods I built temples to, none of them are sovereign. Only your God is. I'm not even sovereign. Your God alone is sovereign. He's declaring to the whole world that God is in control of all things, that God is the only true king, that God is the one who sets up leaders and he's the one who deposes leaders, that God's kingdom is the only kingdom that's everlasting. See, we need to understand that there is not one random molecule in the universe. To believe there's anything over which God is not sovereign is, in my opinion, to function as an atheist. For you're positing that there's something over which God did not create and over which he, is not, which he does not rule. And this makes him helpless in some part of the universe and therefore not God at all. Let's look at how Nebuchadnezzar's epistle to the people makes this clear. If you notice at verse 3 of chapter 4, you see the statement, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is ever, as an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if you go down to verse 34 of the same chapter, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That is a Hebrew literary device called an inclusio. What's an inclusio? It's like bookends. You guys know what bookends are, right? Okay? And what those bookends do, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, right? His dominion is forever. What he's doing there is he's telling you uh, with those bookends, this is what this whole letter is really ultimately about. This is the focus. God's kingdom is sovereign and not mine. God's kingdom is ruling forever and not mine. This is what it's about. I'm bracketing it. You see it in other places in the Bible. Matthew has an inclusio. The gospel of Matthew starts off right in verse 23 of chapter 1. What happens is we say the angel tells us that his name, Jesus, will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, how does Matthew, the book of Matthew, end? And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew, in some sense, is talking about the idea as a gospel is focusing on, he's bracketing it, is God with us. This picture of Jesus is the picture of God with us. Here, Nebuchadnezzar is focusing on the fact that his kingdom is everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation, not mine. He's sovereign and I'm not. And that's the bookends of the chapter. But further, he goes through and three times he drives us to the heart of the message in verse 17, when he says that you're having this happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar, until, until what? To the end that the living may know that the Most High 
rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And then in verse 25, so there you have it in verse 17 coming from a watcher. In verse 25, you have it coming from Daniel when he says, in the middle of verse 25, seven periods shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And then in verse 32, you have it repeated again from heaven. As in some sense, God speaks from heaven. In verse 32, he says, And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, for seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You think the, pa- the point is being made thoroughly enough by Daniel here? Is anybody missing the point? God is the only sovereign. And you must begin by understanding that central glorious reality of life. He's the only sovereign. But there are implications to the extent of God's sovereignty which we have to grasp. And I want to I give you three brief implications to that. Here, here's the first one. When we talk about God's sovereignty, three implications I want you to get a hold of. Here's the first one. God's sovereign will is all-encompassing in its extent. You hear that? All-encompassing in its extent and not contingent on others and its purpose. What? what? Ready? Okay. I'll try to break that down for you. It's all encompassing in its extent. In other words, it is, he is sovereign over all things. There's nothing over which he is not sovereign. And it is not contingent on others and its purpose. In other words, he is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. He isn't coming to you and I seeking permission to do what he wants to do in the hosts of heaven or on earth. And so he's driving after that. It's what you read in Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of earth are nothing, account as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. See, he's not doing according to anybody else's will, doing according to his own. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We can't even question him. It's what Psalm 115.3 says when it says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And you can look at that if you want to with me. Um, you don't have to. I'll read it to you um, as well. But in the letter to Ephesus, Paul makes this statement in him Verse 11, chapter 1, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. See, we have this inheritance coming in Christ. That's where we inter- have obtained it, through our union with him. When we believe in Christ, we are united to him through faith. It's both a real and mysterious union, and we're united to him, and in him we have this inheritance. Because he's the king of all things, we inherit everything with him. But he goes on and says this, having been predestined. Now watch this. According to what? According to the decisions I might make in the future. According to the purpose of him who works all things. How many things? That's the extent. All things. Some things, all things. One thing less than all things, all things. All things but my own decisions, all things. Works all things According to what? According to the counsel of his will. See, the extent of it, of his sovereignty, is all things. And the purpose of it is not contingent on anyone else. It's according to the purpose of his will. 
God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. Really? All things? Yes, all things. Like, what things are included in all things? All things. I'll give you some examples. God is sovereign over good and evil events. He is sovereign over good and evil events. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Job 1.21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's sovereign over good and evil acts or events. He's sovereign over sinful acts. You remember Joseph being enslaved by his brothers to Pharaoh, sold into slavery by them? When he speaks to them, he says this, as for you, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, that was your part. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Not God saw what my brothers did and used it for good. God meant it. He intended it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Acts 2, 23, this Jesus, this is Peter speaking, this Jesus delivered up, he was crucified, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who planned, who planned the sinful act to kill Jesus? God did. Who planned the greatest sin in the history of mankind? The killing of the Son of God. God did. He's sovereign over the free acts of men. What about our freedom? He's sovereign over that. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can plan all you want, but God's going to, every step you take is coming from him. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. John 6 and verse 40 and following, Jesus has drawn a crowd of people who like to eat the bread that Jesus miraculously creates, right? They like it. They're coming back for some more. We'd like some more of that bread, please. And what happens? Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Exactly, Jesus, that's great. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. In other words, Jesus now comparing himself to the manna that God gave to the Israelites after they left Egypt in the Exodus. Jesus is saying, that bread that came down, that gave you life, I'm that bread. That's me. That was a picture, that was a type of me. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who provides for you. I am your hope. I'm the one who gives you life. And the Jews grumble about it. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know your parents. What are you talking about? You're the bread of life. We know your mom and dad. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said, answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now he tells us why they're grumbling, which is quite interesting. No one, universal negative. No one. You know what that is? It's a universal negative. Do you know who's included in no one? Everyone is included in no one. You understand that? Everyone is included in no one. So who's outside of this no one? No one's outside of no one. No one Universal negative, no one 
can, word of ability, not word of permission, not may, not, you know, like you go to your parents and say, may I go to the restroom? And, you know, you don't ever say that because you're using incorrect grammar. So you say, can I go to the restroom? And your mom is a smart mouth and she says, I'm sure you can, right? And then you're going, well, that's not what I'm asking. Okay, you guys follow me on that? And she says, may you go to the restroom? Yeah, may. May I have permission? That's not what this is. is can. A word of ability, not permission. No one can come to me unless, unless here's, the, here's the exception clause. The only way you can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Sovereign over everything. Sovereign over chance occurrences. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Sovereign over the details of our lives. Verse, Psalm 139, 16, you, you, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Jesus and Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The sparrows don't even fall to the ground apart from him. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He's sovereign over the number of hairs on your head. Some of you may ask him, what have you done? <laughs> but you're not supposed to. <laughs> sovereign over the affairs of nations. Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge of those who have understand, to those who have understanding. Sovereign over final salvation of the saints and destruction of the wicked. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Romans 9.17, and speaking of Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's not good to be Pharaoh. Jude 1.4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first implication. He's sovereign over all things. That's the extent. And he's contingent on no one in his purpose, sovereignty. Second quick implication, God's sovereign will is always right and just. Always right and just. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar declares when he says, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. It's what Deuteronomy 32 says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. You might look and say, if he's sovereign over all things, why is he doing some of these things? And the declaration back to you is, you may not be able to understand it, but you need to trust that he is always right and always just whether you always can wrap your noodle around how that can be or not. You don't see the whole picture. You see a little tiny corner of a massive mural that God is painting, and you see that little tiny corner, and you're like, why is this here? Because you're not God. You can't back up and see the whole thing. You don't know. But he's right and just in all that he does. God's sovereign will, last one, humbles us. It humbles us. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. See, he sovereignly created everything. He sovereignly sustains everything. He sovereignly gives mercy to whom he wills. He sovereignly gives justice 
to whom he wills. Which is why Paul, at the end of 11 chapters of laying out the doctrine of salvation in the letter to Rome, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can be his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, none can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? We so often forget the Lord is the sovereign one, and we look around and we imagine that perhaps God is not in control of the affairs of men. Nebuchadnezzar believed he was sovereign, and the Jews probably largely believed Nebuchadnezzar was sovereign as well. But God reminds them that God alone is sovereign, and he uses their formerly pagan king to do it. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that Satan believes the same of himself, don't we? He believes he's sovereign. And Jesus reminds us that the Lord is the only sovereign, and thus the only one worthy of our worship. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted, it says this, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now notice that arrogance of Satan, like he is somehow in control of all things. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus came as king, and he established his kingdom. And he's been given authority over all things. Thus we're to look to him and call upon him and call the nations to call upon him to look to Jesus alone as king and sovereign. And the second smaller sub-point I want to hit at is this. God is merciful to whoever he wills. Not only is he the sovereign God, but he's merciful. I, I would tell you this. God's sovereignty would be only and ever terrifying if he were not also merciful. Remember the chiastic structure I told you guys about Daniel 2 to chapter se- from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7? I don't know if you remember, but I talked about the Hebrew literary device called the chiastic structure. That whole section from chapter 2 to chapter 7 is in Aramaic. Chapter 1 of Daniel is in Hebrew. Chapter 8 through 12 of Daniel is in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through chapter 7 are in Aramaic. And the reason they're in Aramaic is they're pointing something out to you. They're showing you a chiastic structure. They're building a case. And chapter chapter 2 is about the four kingdoms that come in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And chapter 7 is about the four kingdoms that come in Daniel's vision. Chapter 3 is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to the fiery furnace. And chapter 6 matches up with that. It's about Daniel and the lion's den. And chapter 4, as you're coming to the center of this structure, it's like, it's like a ladder that comes like this and comes up like this. And it meets right in the center. As you come, chapter 4 is about God's sovereignty and mercy to Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter 5 comes in with God's sovereignty in the life of Belshazzar. Only in the life of Belshazzar, it's all justice. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked king, God comes and is sovereignly merciful to him. And in the case of Belshazzar, the wicked king, God comes to him and says, Mene, mene, tekel, parson. You know what that means? You've been weighed and you've been found wanting and your life is now over. No mercy for Belshazzar, just justice. And the point of this 
chiastic structure is to drive you to the understanding that throughout this letter, you're being presented to the Jewish people, no matter what you see around you, no matter how the world seems to be falling apart around you, in spite of the fact that you've been conquered and taken into exile, God is sovereign, and no one else is. And he's merciful to whom he wills, and he's just to whom he wills. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he's merciful. So why is God merciful to Nebuchadnezzar and just to Belshazzar? Because he is. We're not told anything else. Because he is. God is merciful to whom he is merciful, and he's just to whom he is just. That is his right, because he's God. If you want to see more on that, you can go read Romans 9. He begins, when Nebuchadnezzar gets a hold of God's mercy and sovereign providence, he begins by singing of what God has done for him. If you're looking at Daniel 4, he starts off saying that. It has seemed good to me, in verse 2, seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. What an interesting way to talk about making you crazy, huh? God made me crazy for seven years. Let me write about you, to you about the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. He made me insane. Wasn't that kind of him? But Nebuchadnezzar sees the kindness in God in it. See, losing your mind is not the thing you would typically praise God for, is it? But Nebuchadnezzar knew it was God's mercy to him. We're also told that God is merciful, warning Nebuchadnezzar about his coming trial and is protecting Nebuchadnezzar in the midst of his trial. He never finishes Nebuchadnezzar off. He bruises the reed, but he doesn't break it. What do I mean by that? See, God alone is sovereign. He's merciful to whom he wills. He's merciful to whom he wills. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks quite well of himself. In fact, he believes he's basically an oak, doesn't he? Like an oak tree. You know what an oak tree is? I'm borrowing this from Richard Sibbs, by the way, the Puritan. You know what an oak tree is? An oak tree is, is a pretty strong tree, isn't it? plants in, roots itself deep, is quite strong, and Nebuchadnezzar seems to think that of himself. He can stand on his own. He's strong. He's sovereign. But really, he's more like a reed, isn't he? You know what a reed is? You guys ever seen a reed? You're out by a lake or a pond, and these little shoots, these green shoots come up, and they sort of blow in the wind like this. They're reeds. You ever notice how weak a reed is? You just, you just bruise a reed, and, it, and it, it, it's, you just barely squeeze on it, and it almost starts to break and fall over, doesn't it? And you can bruise it and keep it from falling over, but if you squeeze just a little too hard, it breaks, and it's over. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's an oak tree. He thinks he's sovereign. He thinks he has it together, but really he's a reed, and God is merciful in showing him he's a reed. God just bruises him and doesn't break him. Jesus, who is God's sovereign mercy to us, says that he came to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that a bruised reed he will not break. Hear that? As a sinful and fallen people, we are those reeds whom God is regularly and mercifully bruising. But he will not break us. God bruises Nebuchadnezzar with insanity for a time, but he does not break him off entirely as he does Belshazzar in the next chapter. This is why Nebuchadnezzar says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He mercifully bruised Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to repentance for the first time, and that is what often happens in the severe mercy we often face, even after we repent and become believers. Or maybe I should say, 
especially after we repent and become believers. Don't believe for a second that this merciful bruising to bring about repentance only happens to those whom God brings to faith for the first time. It happens to you as believers. That's what he means by a father disciplines those whom he loves. He will bruise the reed without breaking it. As Richard Sibbs has said, God bruises the reed so he, so he will know he is a reed and not an oak. And boy, is there freedom in knowing that. He does this for all his children whom he sovereignly chose in his son Jesus. So what do we do with all this? If you're an unbeliever, you repent and believe in Jesus who is the king and is himself, is himself God's mercy to you. You look to him. You recognize I'm a sinner. I'm not sovereign. I'm not in control. My life's a mess. I need the Lord and I don't deserve him. I've turned from him. I've walked my own way. I've sought my own philosophy. I've looked to do things the way I think they need to be done. And my only hope is that there was a man who came and lived perfectly in my place, who walked the way I never did, who obeyed God in all things, who was righteous in every way, tempted in every way, yet without sin. That that man walked in my place, that that man named Jesus then went to the cross and paid the penalty due to me for all of my disobedience on the cross, and then that man rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, resurrected from his grave, making sure that that, what he accomplished on the cross in his life, is true and vindicated. And that gets applied to me when I believe. That gets applied to me when I believe. And you turn to him, and you look to him, and you trust in him, and you know you're forgiven of your sins, and you're cleansed of all unrighteousness, and you're counted righteous, and you're adopted as a child. That's what you do. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. As believers, we respond by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We need to recognize that he is the only sovereign. He is merciful to whom he will. And we need to let Nebuchadnezzar's song fill our hearts and our mouths. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who recognize that you are sovereign and we are not. Recognize that not only are you sovereign, but you have sovereignly chosen to be merciful to us. We deserve none of it. And yet you have shown us great grace and mercy in your son Jesus. Father, I pray we'd be thankful for that. I pray if there are any unbelievers in here, any people who are walking in pride, that you would humble them, that you would bring them low, that they would know that Jesus alone is their hope. They would know that they need to look to you and recognize you. And Father, we pray for those who, who already know you or are walking with you, we pray that you would humble us, they'd continue your work in us of mercy and bringing us more and more to the point where we, we recognize that you are God and we are not, that we trust in you and that we rejoice in you and that we worship you and that your praise is always and ever on our lips and in our hearts and in our minds. 
Father, we pray you would bring the severe mercy necessary for that to happen in our lives. We know that, that what comes from it is so much greater than clinging to life being comfortable. We know that it's painful for a time, yet it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and we want that fruit. We thank you for your word, for the fact that you've proclaimed yourself so clearly in it. In Jesus' name, amen.